time is now 3 p.m. Stay tuned for A Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is Tuesday, August the 14th, 2012, I think. Aha, I have in my hand the September issue of Vanity Fair. A friend came to bring it to me this morning. I thought I had something profound, something, <laughs> something historical, but I see that... <laughs> History, history, history's hinge. You know, we're all caught in history's hinge. Every day it changes. Check it out. The September issue of Vanity Fair. Uh, now, if you're one of those like me who has trouble, who gets a headache watching electoral politics, uh, not politics in the grand sense, but this, uh, this business of who's going to be the boss of it, uh, uh, you may be tempted to despair, right? What's that? The last temptation of Christ. Despair, despair and die, damn it. No, I took one look at this guy, Paul Ryan, the new, the new candidate for VP for the Republican Party. And I thought, oh, God, what, what gave me a chill, but I'm too old for pessimism. It's too late for that nonsense. At my age, I have no choice, you know, no choice but optimism, hope for the best. You know, uh, we don't change the world, but maybe, maybe we stop it from crashing, crashing off the edge. Anyway, I'm looking here at this September issue of Vanity Fair, and I just want to recommend the articles to you I have not cross-reference them for my own for my own um, files but uh, the worst one is called Boss Rove uh, all the usual suspects are in here but it does seem uh, according to this article that Carl Rove is the de facto leader of the Republican Party and that his 2012 game may be just the beginning. Uh, toxic he was a few, oh, a few years ago. Tarred by scandal, all that. But now it seems he's back in the catbird seat. <laughs> a money man. Creating a shadow in the Republican Party. Uh, 
I wonder if you've had a chance to see a television show called Newsroom. They go back, uh, I gave me a headache at first, but they're certainly in there trying. They go back and study our past errors, especially the media, the media mess. Um, I think my favorite so far, the favorite uh, was the um, British Petroleum mess. Anyway, they've been, uh, well, they, they got the uh, Koch brothers. They targeted them, um, let's see, for the elders, you've got Jane Fonda and Sam Waterston. That will do for the older folks. And for the young men, there's the guy that was the lead in in um, Slumdog Millionaire. Uh, they, they've got plenty of, plenty of uh, soap opera romance with the younger characters. Anyway, check out Newsroom. Now I'm back here. Let's see, letter from Washington boss Rove. Uh, mm-hmm. I think, <laughs> oh, it's just too damn depressing. It's just, there, there's a hideous picture of Carl Rove with a little elephant piggy bank, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, the article's by Craig Unger, U-N-G-E-R. Once again, it's the September issue of Vanity Fair. And, uh, you know, I could give you the names of all these people. Uh, it goes on and on. It's another article called The Hiring of the President. Uh, this one is all about Mitt Romney's mantra, the thing about uh, businessmen being the ones to run America. You remember one of the, uh, one of our old president said, the business of America is business. Uh, anyway, history shows the opposite. Private sector successes mostly flopped in office. Not all of them, but mostly. Uh, and, um, you know, the important kind of experience that of, uh, you know, coming face to face with your mortality, that's the kind of experience that Mitt Romney may not have, however. Mitt Happens, this article is by Todd S. Purdum, once T-O-D-D-S-P-U-R-D-U-M. And it's, again, the September issue of Vanity Fair. I, I don't know if you want to memorize this stuff, but if you really are a political junkie and you like to follow the money, which is, of course, the only way to figure out what the hell is happening, economic determinism, uh... Okay, check it out. The types, yes, who populate your typical legislature. I don't know. I um, was always impressed with the men who went into politics who were bad businessmen. They seem to do well. There's a word in Russian that I've forgotten now. Uh, it's... Um, uh, it's a put-down in Russian. It means a businessman. Yes, to be good at business is to be lacking in soul. Anyway, uh, the presidents who messed up, let's see, Abraham Lincoln. Uh, <laughs> he referred to his own bills as the national debt, right? Couldn't keep the money straight. Uh, uh, who else? The worst ones. Um Actually, George Washington, uh, when he retired, everything had gone to the devil. Before he was president, he, he did pretty well. Uh, 
Uh, he was a tight-fisted guy, and he married money, uh, owned a distillery. But uh, once he became committed to the American uh, future, independence, and inventing this job president, uh, he did mess up. Uh, it's funny. Harry Truman, remember, was a haberdasher, and uh, he was still working to pay off his creditors when he went into politics. Uh, anyway, the list is long. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was a rich boy. The article refers to him as a spoiled country squire, led the nation through the Depression and World War II. But uh, other than that, he never really worked a day in his life. Uh, he did spend uh, a little time as a Wall Street lawyer. Uh, let's see. Warren G. Harding was a <laughs> businessman who did okay. Anyway, the point is well taken. We all know that uh, businessmen have their uses, but not uh, not the sort of thing I care about. The article mostly fills you in on all of the background of uh, presidents in the past who have had what I would call profound life experiences, the sort of thing that enabled them to, uh, <laughs> what is that, empathize. There's a nasty, nasty article also in the Vanity Fair of September uh, 2012. Yes, uh, it's the one that lists, well, it um, points to all the books about Barack Obama that have been extremely nasty. I'm sure you're familiar with some of those. They they pick three particular books, and the the gist of the article is the fact that the authors really... I haven't got anything on Barack, certainly no sex scandals. Uh, well, you know, his father back in Kenya, a much married, uh, it, well, it is the custom of uh, Obama's seniors' country in Kenya, you know. Uh, anyway, uh, Obama himself is certainly, um, what is it, uh, not the sort of person you're going to get much on, uh, vilifying the president. Let's see. Some of these books have hit bestseller lists. Obviously, the Christian community will believe anything, and they're happy to read all these, uh, what I would call these blacklash books. Yes. Um, uh, Doreen Borelli, B-O-R-E-L-L-I, is the trashiest one. The title is Blacklash, How Obama and the Left Are Driving Americans to the Government Plantation. You've heard about that one. Uh, it's wonderful how they can twist the words and give us the Orwellian spin. Uh, anyway, I would recommend, of course, first off, reading the president's books, uh, I love the one that he's got on tape, the first book, his biography. I think that should be in the schools. I'm not sure whether it's uh, politically correct to read our president's biography in the public schools. I would uh, think that it would be the first on the list of political books. Uh, anyway, uh, the point of these books is that they are primarily novelty acts. They are written to make money, and the data suggests that uh, 
that if there is a backlash against Obama among American African voters, they have yet to find it. It didn't happen. It's um, strictly a media metaphenomenon. Uh, mm-hmm. Says here that these writers, well, that uh, at least the one who wrote Blacklash, had better pray for Obama's re-election because otherwise that's the end of her vaudeville career. Okay. Oh, the roots of Obama's rage. Oh, dear. These 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 are absolute nonsense. Uh, I love this quote. Guy by the name of D'Souza. Dinesh. Now, wait a minute. That's a girl. Dinesh D'Souza. D-I-N-E-S-H. D'Souza. The roots of Obama's rage uh, falls into the mind-programmed camp. You know how that is. It uh, affirms people's prejudices. Uh, anyway, um, here's the quote. Obama's father is a, this is the quote, philandering, inebriated African socialist. End of quote. <laughs> the father filled his young son's cranial cavern with malevolent uh, smoke and sent him on an anti colonialist mission that explains Obama's machete path from obscurity to the Oval Office. The father's quest was to cripple America as a superpower forevermore. Uh, oh, God. Anyway, all this stuff, uh, I guess, you know, uh, my impulse is to believe that it could have been worse. Um, anybody in our culture uh, who makes money off this stuff, I think we can dismiss as simply an opportunist, right? Uh, they they refer very often in this article to Dick Morris, the one that vilified the Clintons. Uh, Dick Morris used to be a pal of Bill and Hillary Clinton. I wonder, I'd like to be a fly on the wall if they ever have an honest talk with each other. Anyway, uh, the other article you want to check out in the September issue of Vanity Fair is the one um, about the Koch brothers, K-O-C-H. David was the worst. Anyway, <laughs> these these guys get a going over in the television show newsroom. Uh, they are the current bad guys in my book. Um, says here, the Koch brothers alone are planning to spend more money than McCain's entire 2008 presidential budget. That's according to political consultant Mark McKinnon. Once again, you know, all these usual suspects, uh, if you are a political junkie, I suppose you want to put all their names up on the wall and <laughs> color them. Yes, color them in. I I was thinking the other day that uh, in order to... to uh, in order to synthesize this stuff down to where it's poetry, we should go back to fiction and find, uh, well, I have a copy of Margaret Atwood's book, The Handmaid's Tale. That would be my pick, my favorite. Uh, Margaret Atwood wrote a book, oh gosh, I think I remember teaching it in the 1980s, uh, a book all about... Um, uh, a dystopian future 
in which, well, <laughs> maybe we would have um, uh, color-coded gender roles. Uh, the um, the film made use of this so beautifully. Uh, yes, the four categories of women, the uh, handmaids, the fertile women, those few women who were still fertile in the future, they wore these red gowns, very, very maidenly, very sexy. <laughs> and the infertile wives, um, matrons, they wore blue, kind of, kind of um, respectable, conservative, kind of like suits. I remember one of the Republican conventions in the 80s, one of the rules was no dangling earrings at the Republican convention. I'll check out this this coming up convention and see if the women are allowed to wear dangling earrings. The women in brown were the collaborators, the uh, teachers, professors, the, uh, I think of the women in the Christian movement now, uh, the ones who, at least the ones who answer the phones, but, you know, the ones who pass on the message. Uh, they uh, do what they're told by the male rulers. Let's see, the gray-green women, they're the Marthas. They simply do the the uh, the work. They are the, uh, oh gosh, um, the housekeeping, right. Uh, the uh, hands-on labor force, the manual labor. Let's see, um, I was thinking, I don't, I don't want to look at any of the books that are negative. I don't see the point in it. There are too many grim ones. The book, The Turner Diaries, that's the one that Timothy McVeigh carried around. Uh, it was referred to as his Bible, or anyway, his little how-to book was all about the ways in which the uh, white supremacy movement would carry out the next revolution. Timothy McVeigh, you will remember, was executed for uh, the destruction of the uh, a federal building. I believe the body count was 169 human beings. Anyway, the book is on about race wars and how we must murder all the Hollywood sluts and maintain male dominance, that kind of thing. Uh, I think that Margaret Atwood's book... Uh, it, it has it has a certain charm, unlike the Turner Diaries, in which we see at the same time we see both both points of view. The movie I would recommend. Uh, see, Robert Duvall played the bad guy, uh, and uh, Natasha Richardson played the handmaid who's trying to find her lost child and uh, escape from her role as a fertile fertile woman uh anyway i was thinking about it um uh while i was watching would you believe uh the the film about hemingway and gellhorn the two uh well you do remember ernest hemingway one of <laughs> one of our writers the guy who made war so popular once again fiction fiction is so strange Obviously, Hemingway was against war, but he made people fall in love with it, or men anyway. You know how that that's such a problem. Now, in Margaret Atwood's book, 
we do not fall in love with the roles of these women. Uh, uh, the the role of Martha Gellhorn, uh, Hemingway's, I think, third wife, one, two, three, right. Um, she was a journalist, and as she said, they could get along fine when they were out chasing, uh, when they were war correspondents, when they were chasing the enemy. But when they were left at home, things got boring, and they uh, made a war in the home. Uh, oh, boy, men and women, from Euripides to Ibsen. Uh, the war follows us around. Anyway, Clive Owen and Nicole Kidman are in that um, film. And I, I was trying to write something the other day. It, it it didn't gel for me. It was about the absolutes. Uh, the point being that no matter what we do, uh, we can't seem to, what is that, demonize war. <laughs> it's, it's all about glory no matter how we, no matter how we twist and turn. Uh, there will be a way to make it look good. Um, I don't know, humor, tenderness, intimacy, all those things, uh, always, uh, what is that, uh, they, they turn into some effeminate or sentimental tale that people resist. I, I'm not sure. I've never figured this out. Uh, I just know that film always argues in favor of the behavior it shows. And uh, the movies, most of all, uh, have failed to demonize war. Uh, anyway, we try. Gosh, we try. Uh, I was thinking mostly about how writers fail to, uh, what is it, paint a picture of uh, the bad stuff. I find that most people... Just say, well, I can't read that. It's too painful. I had a collection of stories I was working with last year. It was the diaries and stories of children written during wars. And, of course, it is so painful that most people couldn't bear to read it. It is the most successful piece of writing I've come across uh, in that it it does, what is that, uh, it does illustrate the horrors of war. Uh, there's one scene in the Gellhorn and Hemingway film in which Arthur Gellhorn stumbles into uh, the death camps after World War II. And they showed the footage, the images, the pictures uh, of people being bulldozed into mass graves. Those pictures that uh, stained our consciousness. I remember seeing them when I was a, a little child of 11 or 12, and uh, they changed my life and the lives of the people around me, of course. Uh, and uh, she says in the film that she was, she despaired for the human race, and we see her running away, fleeing from the scene, unable to take it all in. Uh, and then, of course, when she tries to write about it, she can't do it. Uh, this continues to be a terrible problem for writers. I was looking last night to find, uh, what is that? Uh, well, there's a wonderful piece by Toni Morrison that I meant to read you anyway, and it's all about, uh, well, it's all about the stuff that's in Vanity Fair 
about how how um, political people reach a final solution. <laughs> yes. How they reach their first solution, their second solution, the third solution, you know. And uh, it, of course, is what the right wing is doing today. Uh, we hope they don't succeed, but they're certainly hacking away at it. She says, first of all, they construct an internal enemy as both focus and diversion. The internal enemy is Barack Obama and his government plantation, right? <laughs> anyway, it's, this article by Tony Morrison is dated, would you believe, 1993? Uh, it's the year she got the Nobel Prize for Literature. Uh, no, wait a minute, this article is 1995, pardon me, 95, two years after, it's in the Nation magazine, and she calls it the marketing of power, that's what Carl Rove and the boys know all about. This is part of a speech that she made at Howard University in 1995, right, uh, she's talking about the final solution. And she says, first you construct an internal enemy. That's the focus and the diversion. Then you isolate and demonize that enemy by unleashing and protecting the utterance of overt and coded name-calling and verbal abuse. Employ ad hominem attacks as legitimate charges against that enemy. <laughs> yes, you, you hear... You hear these clowns saying that uh, our president has destroyed jobs. I forget, whatever. Um, my favorite is on the, I think, the uh, Colbert Report. Was it the Colbert Report or the Daily Show? Anyway, that's the one about how Barack Obama is uh, not being properly empathetic towards his dog. Yes, he doesn't play with his dog. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then, of course, they show you all the pictures of Barack playing with his dog and say that it isn't really happening. You know the sort of thing. Anyway, the third thing you do is you enlist and create sources and distributors of information, people who are willing to reinforce the demonizing process because it is profitable. It grants power and because it works. There's money to be made here, boys and girls. You know how that is. <laughs> write a book about a man uh, who's managed to be the first mixed-race president of these United States. Of course, he's not the first mixed-race president, but he's the first one to claim his black ancestry. Uh, anyway, let's see. Then you monitor, discredit, and expel all the art forms that challenge or destabilize these processes of demonization and deification. Okay, right. Let's see. You subvert and malign all representatives of and sympathies, sympathizers with this constructed enemy. Okay. Go out there and get them, boys. Solicit from among the enemy collaborators who agree with and can sanitize the dispossession process. Now, this is a good one. Pathologize the enemy in scholarly and in popular mediums. 
recycle, for example, scientific racism and the myths of racial superiority in order to naturalize the pathology. There you go, and you've got, you've got these pitiful dudes who are out uh, doing the white power trip. Uh, there's 84 of those groups in California. Apparently, there's roughly 700 in the nation at large. Most of all, you got to criminalize the enemy, especially its males and absolutely its children. And at all costs, maintain silence. That's racism and fascism, the marketing of power by Toni Morrison back in 1995 in The Nation. I'll be back on the air same time next week. This has been Jennifer Stone. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. The first annual San Francisco Son Jarocho Festival will take place this August 16th through 19th at the Bravo Theater on 24th Street in York in San Francisco. The festival is presenting amazing bands from Mexico like Los Cojolites and Pasu Mecha, as well as Jarocho fusion bands like the Jarocho rock music of Quetzal from East L.A. and the Electro Jarocho trans-border collaborations of Sistema Bomb. Please come to this important new festival celebrating the musical traditions of Veracruz, Mexico and the modern evolution of folkloric music here in the Bay Area at the first annual San Francisco Son Jarocho Festival, August 16th through 19th at the Brava Theater in San Francisco. This event is wheelchair accessible and is a benefit for the Brava Theater. More information at www.sfsjf.com. Co-sponsored by KPFA.